Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to RCR um, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. And this afternoon or today, we're most uh, grateful to have Patrick Phelps from Minerals West Coast join us. Patrick's got a long history of... um, of public engagement on things mining uh, that some of you may have uh, noted on YouTube. But aside from that, he's um, also got a long CV um, and some very interesting aspects to it. And so welcome, Patrick. Welcome to RCR Greenwashed. And we'd love to know basically your life, what's and all to date, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of mining and conservation. Right. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know how long you've got, but anyway, yeah, hi there, uh, Don and Jasper. Thanks for having me on. So, yeah, name's um, Patrick. I was born just um, in Hokitika on the West Coast, about early 1990s, and I don't remember it particularly well, but at the time, my family were running a gold claim just south of the Hokitika River on a block of land that they'd purchased about, oh, I think... My sister, my I've got a few siblings. My sister is about three years older than me. wasn't born in the house that I grew up in, but that's on the land that um that they ended up mining about a hundred hectares. Now, a bit of that was mined. A lot of it's still got quite a lot of native bush on it. Actually, got a QE2 covenant, and part of that's in pasture now. But that was mined up until about the late oh, mid to late nineties, and then they mined uh, my father and grandfather, who had Phelps Mining, along with my mother and my grandmother. Um, they mined a few other places around the west coast as well, up around Westport. And then late 90s, price of gold, I think when, from memory from what Dad tells me, when they moved down to the coast for all of 18 months and still there 30 odd years later um, to get into mining, the price of gold was about $600 US an ounce. So I don't know how you adjust that for inflation, but it was lucrative at the time. About 10 years later when they got out, it was down to about $300 an ounce. So, you know, at at the time they got out of it, um, I guess it just made sense. And then... Mum and dad actually took my three siblings and I, I'm the youngest of the four of us, to live in Japan for about a year. So I've still got some memories of that. I turned six over there, came back, um, high, uh, primary school and high school in Hokitika, and then moved off to Canterbury later on to um, study journalism, and then worked as a reporter for National Radio for a bit in Christchurch. A uh, brief stint down in Dunedin, a year or so working for Silverfern Farms, sort of doing marketing and communications work. And... I guess that period of my life from sort of high school through to university early career punctuated by a few sort of stints um, working on dairy farms, worked in a workshop with, uh, called Excavator World when I was at high school where they used to pull old machinery apart, um, sell spare parts of diggers and things like that. Uh, what else did I do? Oh, a couple of seasons tour guiding in South Westland as, as well, which is probably what instilled an appreciation, I guess, for New Zealand's biodiversity and that sort of stuff, um, which I think is quite helpful with the work that I'm doing at the moment. And then went and spent a couple of years living over in China when I got a scholarship to go over there and study Mandarin. And so that was from about 2017 through to early 2019. And um, I was back for my sister's wedding sort of in the summer of 2019, January and February and I had a I had a summer job just trying to save up some money for my last semester and to fund a bit of travel at the end of my studies in China, working just helping with maintenance at Silverfin Farms, Hokitika. So if anyone has ever worked at a freezing works, you'll know that doing the cleaning and maintenance is probably one of the least glamorous jobs you can have there. Not and that's quite a stiff competition to be fair. But um, the yeah, and at the time I saw a job advertised on the back page of the Grey Star just two or three weeks before I went back to China for 
Minerals West Coast, and I was sort of quite intrigued by that. There was a lot going on in the industry at the moment and at, at, at the time, sorry, and I'd been keeping a bit of an eye on that from China, mainly just because I had, a, you know, I'd, I'd never directly worked in mining or anything like that other than, geez, maybe a very brief stint when Dad gave me a bit of a run on the dump truck before he realised that probably wasn't the best idea. And um, and then, yeah, so this job advertised, was interested in it purely as a, as a West Coaster and as someone who was, I guess, a miner's, Son and just wanting someone that could advocate, I guess, for the mining industry, among other things. At at the time, some of the current government's policies were starting to look quite frightful for the sector in terms of you know the ramifications of the zero carbon acts, no new mines on conservation land, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, having an affinity with the sector and I guess a background in journalism and things like that, I was just interested in it. So I put my name forward and um. Yeah, long story short, by the time I got back from China in August 2019, um, I had that sort of lined up as a job to come back to, which was which was quite handy, actually, because prior to that, my plan had really been to just come back, get any job that I could get in Hokitika for 12 months and then shoot off traveling around the world. But by that stage, COVID had read its ugly head, so I don't really think that would have um, worked and I'd possibly still be at the freezing works right now if that had been the case. So, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Or the West Coast uh, gain, you might say, because certainly uh, provincial New Zealand is under under the pump, and you do mm. need patriots. You need to, you do need provincial patriots to uh, to sort of be looking out for uh, for their for their region. And so, could you just tell us a little bit about Minerals West Coast and what it actually is and how it's funded um, its membership? Mm. Yeah, so it's I mean it's an industry body effectively. So anyone that's familiar with the likes of federated farmers or you know which is voluntarily member funded by people who value that the work it does advocating for the farming industry it's it's much the same model basically we we do the work through minerals west coast so i report to a group of trustees that are elected by the membership sometimes it's just a case of who sneezes at the agm and gets told that they're doing a term as a as a trustee but um you know that made up of you know, representatives from different areas of the sector. And then the membership is effectively, you know, anyone from, I mean, our membership comprises sort of one-man band, black sanders who mine the black sand deposits of the West Coast for a bit of gold, right through to, you know, medium-sized, small to medium-sized alluvial gold mining operations, smaller locally owned um, coal mining companies, quarries, et cetera, all the way through to publicly listed companies like Bathurst Resources, which is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, but all of its mining operations are in New Zealand and its head offices in Wellington. Um, and so, yeah, there's a real breadth and depth of of members there, which is really good because that way, you know, we get input from all the different parts of the industry. And there's, there's different scale, there's different minerals, but fundamentally it's all of the same business model really, which is producing things that people value, which come out of the riches of the earth, basically. And if you're not digging it out of the ground, you are either growing it um, you know, in the ground or at most you're feeding it to an animal after you've grown some pasture or something like that. But there's really no other way to produce things from raw materials. And even recycled materials are just a continuation of that spectrum, really. So yeah. And and on in addition, I guess, to the people who are directly in the business of mining, we've got you know, geologists, consultants, engineering companies that produce gold screens, um, transporters that cart fuel or other things for the industry, um, all, all that sort of stuff, really. So in, anyone with skin in the game um, that thinks they'll benefit from being a member is a member, effectively. So, yeah. Well, uh, all credit to you. And uh, um, it's interesting, you you speak like I do, eh, Jasper? Um, I was thinking the same thing. Effectively, That's good. effectively there's nothing. 
mm. without the harvest of the land, the sea, mm. uh, or the scenery, effectively. Uh, we all enjoy the fruits of that every moment of every day. And everything we have, our whole daily intake is mm. is fated by um, the harvest of, of these sorts of things. So it's great to have a young man, mm. in my opinion, understand that because, man, it's been a battle that I've yeah. been fighting uh, for a long time. So, um, you know, and it's interesting. I don't know if you watch um, uh, Sky Australia sort of, or Sky News. No, that's wrong. Just Sky mm -hmm. TV yeah. and the, the gold rush programs and the opal mining oh, and the yeah. gold and all. Yeah. And you think, you think uh, it's, it's, it's reality TV. I understand all mm. that. But if yeah. you look at, at the Yukon or wherever they are up in uh, uh, Parker Schnabel and his mates, mm. they got the big machines and they just seem yeah. to rip in without, uh, there's no one really talking about how much paperwork Mm. and and uh effort you have to get to or go through to get past go and, yeah uh, can you can you explain that process a little bit more and then uh sorry jasper i know i've hinted your question but um that's that's a pretty biggie to let let's know how you get to do mining on the conservation estate or even yeah. on private land for that matter yeah well i mean it's whether it's conservation land or private land it's it's much the same formula i guess so First things first, the majority, not all, some are privately owned through, you know, various anachronistic things that have sort of grandfathered down. But by and large, most of the minerals that exist in New Zealand's exclusive economic zone are the property of the Crown, effectively. And so if you want to obtain the commercial rights to those minerals, you have to apply for them um, from the Minister for Energy and Resources, who's the relevant minister. And then you will be allocated either a prospecting and exploration or a mining license and or permit, I should say, and those permits allow for those things, but only in a commercial sense. And then you'll pay a tribute um, to the Crown with that license. But that's really just a commercial license. It, it's a bit of a misleading name. People will hear, oh, there's a mining permit, but it doesn't actually permit mining. Um, and then from there, having obtained the rights to the resources, you then have to obtain access to the land by way of an access arrangement. Now, if that's with a private landowner, um, Don, Jasper, if you've got a farm and there's something under it that I want out of the ground, and by the way, I can get that permit without your approval because that permit's no good to me unless either of you wants to give me access to actually dig the ground up and get to it, um, I would then have to come along and make an offer to you as a landowner that makes it worth your while. So basically, I'll have to guarantee that um, if I destroy any fences, if I dig up any pasture, everything's going to be as good as it was before I touched it. And then on top of that, for the hassle of the inconvenience, you're probably going to want to be not just no worse off, you want, you're going to want to be better off as a result of that mining. So, so uh, that's how the access arrangements struck. And if it's on publicly owned land, most often um, conservation land, because conservation land takes up about a third of all of New Zealand, um, you'll have to get permission from the relevant minister, which is the Minister of Conservation and the Minister of Energy and Resources as well, is also a factor in that decision-making process. Um, and when you strike a deal with the Minister of Conservation, it has to be in a way that the minister um, has regard to the purposes for which the land is held. And in this day and age, that'll generally come in the form of providing pest control that will mean biodiversity will be better off than it would have been in the absence of mining that you can argue right how many of this bird is how is worth how many of that frog or snail etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know that's that's the process that you get consultants and you go through the environment court for and all of that sort of stuff and then having got your um 
mining permit, your access arrangement. You'll then also need a resource consent from the local uh, regional council to handle the things that resource consents handle, whether it be noise or dust or discharge to water, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're likely to have any particular impact on any wildlife, let's say there might be bats roosting or potentially roosting in a tree or something like that, you'll have to get a wildlife permit under the Wildlife Act. So that's at least four pieces of legislation um, if you're mining on public conservation land that you've got to satisfy. And then there still might be other considerations under Heritage New Zealand if you're digging through old miners' workings that predate 1900 and that sort of stuff. It's quite a, I mean, if you think listening to that or describing it's exhausting, imagine going through a two or three year process just to get access, you know, to the resource and that sort of stuff. So yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a lot to navigate. It, well, it sounds like quite a rigmarole. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't sound like yeah. easy. But yeah. uh, tell us uh, what, Patrick, what does your role involve? You are a spokesperson for the industry. Is that it? What What yeah. do you do in an average day? Average week. Oh, my average day or week can be quite varied. I mean, a lot of my work is public engagement. And so that doesn't just involve, you know, talking to people. That That's a big part of it. But a lot of the work is actually in doing the research, actually looking up the information, seeing what data, et cetera, is available to actually inform any views that I might then go out and and share with the wider public, engaging with the industry to see what, you know, people within the industry to see what they want me to be doing and that sort of stuff as well. Um, and then, yeah, a big part of it is trying to distill that information down. I mean, without um, drawing too long a bow or being too liberal with a metaphor, I mean, I think a lot of the work is actually much the same as mining. You know, there's this data and this information out there that is basically a raw material that needs to be gathered, it needs to be processed, it needs to be distilled down into something that's actually usable for people. And then having produced that information, you then have to go out and, and get it to people or market it to people. And that can be done through mainstream media, you know, at any opportunity, engaging with television or radio, online, um, print media and that sort of stuff to just try and communicate with as many people as possible, um, social media, uh, then, and I guess in a slightly more official sense, when the government's looking at changing or introducing legislation, they'll put out and people will have been exhausted by these if they've dealt with them, you know, consultation mm. or policy documents and submissions and things like that, which can feel like an exercise in futility. But if you don't do it and it's not on the public record, you know, you've got really nothing to fall back on. So that's and sometimes that's I mean, there, there were things that I've probably submitted on three or four times within a two year period or something like that, as if the politicians or their officials think that they're going to get a different answer if they ask the same question in a slightly different way. Um, so that's engaging with politicians and civil servants. And then there's just direct meetings and engagement. And on, on top of that, part of it's just bringing the industry together as well. So a few weeks ago, middle oh, about a month ago, actually, now we had our annual forum. So we try and hold that in different parts of the West Coast. This year, we had it in Westport, and we had about 160 or 70 people from within the industry and people coming from as far as Western Australia, actually, to come to that. And that's that's a really – I mean, it's about two or three months of work for me leading up to it, and then you right. do it for a day or two, and then, poof, it's gone, and it feels very sort of anticlimactic in a way. Um, but it's it's a really valuable thing, I think, for people in the industry to be able to come together to hear what different people are doing, new projects that are on the go, how people are doing their work, you know, different methods for environmental remediation, what's happening with new markets, new products, et cetera. And, you know, it's also important. That the industry is quite widespread, right? You know, you've got people from as far afield as Westport down to Ross on the West Coast, elsewhere in New Zealand, to just get everyone together in one room or town hall or something like that and have a few beers and have dinner together once a year is an incredibly valuable thing. So there's organising that. And then there's rats and mice 
stuff, accounts payable, receivable, tidying up the minutes for trustee meetings and just general administration and clerical work and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's enough to keep me busy anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, so, most definitely. And, you know, I can definitely, and Don and I, I think we can both vouch for the fact that as time has gone on, farming is certainly getting harder. Yeah. You know, Don be with feds and I just as a contract milker. How about mining? Mm -hmm. How has it changed the, you know, the political spectrum of it over the last few years? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a it's a funny thing. I mean, I sort of think back to, and again, maybe I pay more attention to these things than I do, than I, you know, did five or 10 years ago. But I think when I went to China in 2017, the sort of, you know, ripe old age of 23, sort of sitting off on my OE, I, you know, climate change, for example, was an issue. It was talked about. Um, we didn't necessarily have the frequency of, you know, severe weather and that sort of stuff that it feels like we have, we've had in recent years, but also it didn't feel like something that it was at the forefront of political discourse, whereas just about every party has got some sort of policy or other on climate change. Now, but, you know, you go back 10 years ago or a bit over 10 years ago when, for example, Bathurst Resources set up their office in New Zealand, I don't know because I've been there when I've been in Wellington, and John Key came along and cut the ribbon on the office and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You wouldn't get a leader of a major party within 100, you know, miles of a coal mine these days, unfortunately. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, Coal mining was an essential service through all of the COVID lockdowns, along with the supermarket workers and the nurses and the healthcare workers and all of that sort of stuff. But there's just, there doesn't seem to be that acknowledgement within polite company. I mean, I think generally anyone that's involved in the business of doing anything now, whether it's producing food, producing minerals, my parents have been dealing with probably over the last 10 years or so, subdividing sections off of our you know, land and hokitika and that sort of stuff, that just seems to be getting increasingly difficult and onerous and that sort of stuff. And I, I've i got no issue with regulation in and of itself if it's actually improving an outcome, but some of it's just bureaucracy that adds cost without actually making more timber or coal or gravel or milk or housing or whatever available. So it adds cost without actually adding value. And there, there are definitely things that have been beneficial you know you go back to the early 1990s the crown minerals act was introduced and the resource management act was introduced and under that legislation there's no way that some of the environmental issues that have come about from mining historically say to Arahar or tui mine um up in the i think it's in the waikato um you know there's no way that could happen now under the legislation that exists but people remember those things from the past more than they actually notice that the legislation's change to improve, you know, based on what's happening. I mean, another one, for example, Pike River never should have happened if we'd actually had the appropriate legislation. And since 2015, Workplace Health and Safety Act being passed, for all of the issues people might have with that legislation, it does mean that what happened at Pike River could never happen again in this country. And yet you talk about the prospect of a new underground coal mine on the West Coast, which is currently under consideration, and people are very quick to invoke Pike River. And I find that a little bit frustrating because Pike River was a badly run mine and people didn't know what they were doing. And yet we had the Cave Creek disaster on the West Coast when the viewing platform collapsed on conservation land. Well, we've still got viewing platforms on dock land, but following a coronial inquiry, we've learned from that and the practices that led to that don't actually occur now and couldn't happen again. We had Erebus, which I think is one of New Zealand's largest disasters. We didn't just shut down Air New Zealand as a result of that. We had an inquiry, we learned from it and we moved on from there. So, 
I think people can be a bit selective with their memory sometimes, and that that's what I guess I find quite frustrating in some ways. But yeah, anyway, sorry, look like you've got a, a no, question. And, and with you, you've travelled in China extensively, yeah. and I would have expected seen a few coal mines out there. Yeah. I come from India, and between China and India, mm. about 80% of the world's coal mines are in these two areas. They yeah. don't seem to be tying themselves up in knots because there's always a trade-off, isn't there? Energy and living standards. Yeah, massively, and I mean, um, no, in my, I mean, in my time in China, I never actually did see okay. any any mines. Unfortunately, I mean, I wish I had. And if I if I'd done the work I do now before <laughs> going to China, I probably would have made a point of, of of seeking some out. But you know, when I was living there, one thing that I used to find almost unfathomable was the fact that I think in the entire time that I was in China, I experienced one power cut when a transformer blew out in the um, housing block that I lived in, which is in and of itself a hard thing to describe to anyone in New Zealand that hasn't been to a dense sort of suburb in Asia, just how sort of dense the housing was. But the, and that was just a result, I think, of a tree falling on it or possibly a bit of a mishap with some construction work that was going on. But the the way that I lived in Nanjing, which was a city of 9 million people, down the road was Shanghai with 20 or 30 million people. I used to find it, for all of the chaos in um China that I could observe sometimes. And I had a very good friend of mine, a classmate of mine uh, by the name of Paras Krishlani. He was from India and he said, Patrick, if you think China's chaotic, you, you need to come to India. You'll love it sort of thing, you know. And um, the, the thing that I found incredible over there was actually that almost all of the time, in fact, like, water ran down the pipes and electricity was just there and that sort of stuff. And that's all on the back of coal, really, in both China and India, you know. I mean, I think... You know, we were talking just before we started the interview, Jasper, and the, you only have to go back to 2010 and electricity was only available to 70% of India's population. And in the past 10 years or so, that's got up to 100% all on the back of coal. Now, whatever you want to say about what that's done for the world's emissions or climate change, et cetera, you can't deny that that's improved the living standards of, of people. And, and, and I think that's the real catch-22 that we're facing. There's this global fairly broad consensus globally that there's a need to decarbonise. There's also a unanimous view that no one wants to give up the energy availability that exists in developed countries. There are still a lot of countries. I think there's something like it's about 800 million people around the world still don't have access to a reliable supply of electricity that still have to cook over wood for their heating and for their cooking and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so in the undeveloped parts of the world, there are many people who want to attain the standard of living that exists in countries like New Zealand. But in countries like New Zealand, people want to retain the standard of living that we have and don't want to forego it. So, you know, we, we are in a difficult situation. And yeah, a friend of mine came over and visited me not long before I left China. And he said, Jeepers, you sort of, you know, obviously you still want to recycle and walk and bike a bit and that sort of stuff, but it does put in context what we're trying to achieve here versus what's happening in other countries. So, yeah, anyway. Well, the, the uh, low energy costs and, and available energy costs, yeah. uh, available energy is fundamental to having um, civil um, society and a society yeah. that is that is healthy and mm. and um, has stuff you know, like education and security. So if you try to diminish low-cost energy, I, my biggest fear at the moment in New Zealand is that for all the decarbonisation push, um, I think we could be heading to higher energy costs. Now, mm. I hope I'm wrong, significantly higher energy mm. costs, but I can't say that with surety. But, um, you know, and I used to be involved in the electricity sector, uh, and I think it's um, it's well-placed to make a, 
make a fair bit of cash out of the decarbonisation. But yeah. but in saying that, I do worry that the cost of it for mums and dads in New Zealand, if it sheets home to mums and dads as a as a significant extra, then I think there'll be some resistance. Yeah, and I'm I think one of the really difficult things too for for me is that you know if you know, if if climate change was just left to run rampant, if we just become indifferent to greenhouse gas emissions and we just let it rip, people who are living in more marginal parts of the world in terms of climate and availability will suffer. People living in low-lying areas or where poor tend to be housed, which tend to be in the least desirable places because the market value for properties lower there will be impacted. But if we get this transition to a lower energy society and energy sector wrong, you know, for, for people who've got a bit more money you'll just reduce your discretionary income that you'd otherwise put towards luxuries or savings or investments. But people who don't have that shock absorber, basically, that can't decide, right, I was saving $1,000 a month, now I'm saving $800 a month or something like that. Whereas for other people, they don't have that buffer. It's just straight to basically, right, well, I'm spending all of my money on essentials, whether that's food, energy, getting to work and that sort of stuff. And as those costs start to go up, whether because the cost of food's going up because the cost of production rises or the cost of energy goes up, something's got to give, basically, and it'll be the people who are on the lowest rungs economically that suffer the most and don't actually have anywhere else to go. Anywhere else to go. They've got nowhere that they can actually cut, uh, cut costs sorry, within their household budgets and things like that. And that, that, I think, is the really scary thing because I don't know where people actually go from there. Mm. So going um, on a bit, uh, you talk about emissions. I, I'd love to have your opinion on carbon capture and storage. When mm. does that fit in the equation for uh, the sequestering of emissions effectively? Has it got a place or is it just um, sort of some engineering um, dream that's a bit virtuous? Uh, I don't think it's, I mean, it's intuitive, right? I mean, if you wanted to find the problem, there's too much greenhouse gas going into the atmosphere, that has a heating effect, the planet's heating up, so you either have to stop emitting or reduce the impact of those emissions through some sort of sequestration. And we, there's a tacit admission there, I guess, that that can happen already because of the way that the emissions trading scheme in New Zealand has been structured on the basis that the logic is carbon goes into the atmosphere trees sequester carbon, therefore you can get credits from planting trees. So why not extend that pricing mechanism, which doesn't exist in New Zealand at the moment, to things like carbon caption, utilisation and storage, to at least allow that market market mechanism to work so that if it's cheaper to use some technology that someone develops than it is to plant a tree, then that's what we'll end up doing. I mean, the, the technology is not there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something of a nirvana. It's up there with nuclear fusion, you know, as opposed to fission or whichever one it is, you know, modern um, nuclear, it's, it's not there yet, but that's not to say that it can't be developed. And there's a strong, and, and if you put the right pricing mechanisms in place, I guess you strengthen the incentive for somebody to develop it. So yeah, does carbon capture utilisation and storage ever space? Maybe not yet, but I don't think there's any reason to rule that in the future. So, so yeah. So, so at the base of all this, though, there is a legislated market, um, mm. so I call yeah. it a faux, a faux market. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. You know, and, and so what reality would we get from a legislated market? Because legislation can change. Legislation can, you know, if the carbon price went to a few hundred dollars a tonne, um, mm. we definitely know as mums and dads uh, that our electricity price is going to go through the roof. Yeah. Um, 
mums and dads really need their carbon price at zero and a, and um, a voluntary market would be the best test. A legislated market is not a very good test. That's I'm positing that as an angle. Mm. Yeah. Um, what would what would your response be to that? I, I think the most efficient way of dealing with any form of pollution, whatever form that takes, whether it's carbon dioxide or you know discharges into water, the most desirable thing to do is to price that pollution. If if you want to deal with pollution, that's the most efficient way to deal with it because that way the consumers can effectively decide one of two things. If it's worth just producing that pollution and having the good or service that you fundamentally desire, then people will pay for that to happen. If people don't want that to happen and they'd rather buy other products insofar as substitution or other methods are available, then there's an incentive there to produce that product in a way that you can reduce the pollution. Um, I, I take your point on it being a faux market or a legislated market. When you look at the way that markets work for other things, not necessarily pricing in what people would call you know, externalities or neighbourhood effects and things like that, the cost of producing milk, let's say, because um, we're probably all fairly familiar with that. There's the cost of the rent for the land, um, or if you own the land, you should sort of probably figure out what the cost would be if you were renting out to someone else, because someone might be a better farmer than you are. But, you know, there's the there's the there's the capital cost of the land, the other assets. There's the labour input of having someone tend to the fields and milk the cows. There's the cost of your livestock and that sort of stuff. And then the cost of producing that plus some margin is basically how you get milk to market. Whereas we've effectively decided there is the cost of those emissions going into the atmosphere and people run that figure anywhere between $50 US a tonne and $500 US a tonne, take your pick. Um, we're going to put that in place and then we're going to say, right, if you want to emit, that's the cost of doing so. Where the issue comes, I think, is that, um, and I have mentioned this in things that I've published before, according to the, I think it's the World Bank, I'd have to go and check the exact source for it, but it was a reasonably credible source. There's only about 22% of emissions all around the world have actually got some form of a price on them. So over 80, well, about 80%, 78% of all the emissions in the world don't have a price on them. So going into the atmosphere at with no recognition of the financial cost of that. Among those 22% of emissions that are priced, which includes New Zealand, the average price for those emissions is about $3 US a tonne. Now, New Zealand's price at you, I don't know the exact exchange rates off the top of my head, but if we're sitting at about $60 or $70 New Zealand, I'm going to go somewhere between $30 and $45 US a tonne, which means we're paying somewhere in the margin of sort of 15 times the international price. And that international price only applies to 20-ish percent of emissions anyway. So what that means, if you're not just talking about percentages and numbers, is it means that as it gets more expensive to do things in New Zealand that have a carbon cost component, insofar as things can be sent to other countries, that's the incentive that's going to happen. I mean, you know, we see that where there's a large component of unskilled labour in a product, you can't sell labour at New Zealand at any rate below $20 an hour now. So if there's something that needs to be produced with a labour input of below $20 an hour, and probably including the shirt that I'm wearing, the $6 shirts I get from Posty Plus every sort of six months and that sort of stuff, they will be produced in places like Bangladesh where there's lower cost labour. If there's somewhere in the world where it's cheaper to emit, and I, I find it really difficult to see milk um, or beef or anything going in a you know, you can't shift the farms overseas. But what I could see happening is Fonterra deciding, jeepers, it's pretty expensive to add 
value to products here. We'll just produce a concentrate or a powder and then send that overseas so that the, the energy component, the cost component can be added in another jurisdiction where it doesn't cost so much, you know, to emit basically. So that that I think is going to be the long run. I don't actually remember the exact answer that you asked, uh, question that you asked on, but hopefully that sort of gives you something to go off. Well, I know it's good because uh, we don't have this discussion. I mean, uh, the standard answer we'd get back from uh, from the marketers and processing mm. companies, or, or or the Fonteras and the meat companies mm. of the country as well. But where it's around branding, it's around branding. We'll have these new credentials that will um, give us a massive uh, massive market advantage. Um, I've never heard anyone dollarize that for me. Um, mm, it's no. easy to say they just can't define it. But no. it's because it gets access. They say it gives us an easier way of negotiation. Maybe yeah, which, it does. Maybe it does. But I mean, to me, that's something that if the owners of Fonterra have customers overseas and that's what they dictate, then the buyer and the seller find each other on you know mutually beneficial terms. But again, I. I'm just a bit skeptical of that for for a couple of reasons. One of which is, you know, in the couple of years that I spent in China, you see these beautiful gold blocks of West Gold, you know, um, from Western Mill, with 56 Livingston Street on there. And as someone from, I'm not a particularly patriotic person. I don't take a lot of pride necessarily in being a New Zealander, but I am probably a bit tribal when it comes to being a West Coaster. And, you know, to see something from the butter factory or the milk factory in the town that I grew up in all the way off in these offshore markets, you sort of think, geez, that's quite exciting. But then you actually look at it and there's a nice gold block of Kerrygold from Ireland sitting next to it. And there's all these other blocks of butter from other countries in the world. And basically... People in China, I don't know other markets particularly well, people in China trust imported products more than they trust their own. So that's a reason those products are on the market for people who have got the ability to pay for them. But they're all at pretty much the same price. Now, if you double the price of that block of butter compared to its counterparts from other countries, most consumers aren't going to pay for it. Um, The other one around market access, I mean, the richest consumers in the world off the top of my head would be in Western Europe and North America. And both of those are countries that are yet to strike any meaningful free trade agreement with New Zealand and give us any market access. Most of the animal proteins that we export go to the developing markets in Asia, where you've got growing middle classes, but primarily people who prioritise safety, quality of food and cost over any warm fuzzies that they might get from buying you know, a block of butter or a pound of cheese or whatever else at any particular price. So yeah, it's... Insofar as these market access are a premium customer, surely it's only for those wealthier or richer discerning consumers and markets that we don't have much access to anyway. So, yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's the line that's always used, Patrick. They um, they are going for the discerning uh, customer around the world. And uh, I remember um, the middle class of China was going to be such a huge uh Mm. huge consumer of New Zealand products but but now we're back down to talking about we're only going after the most affluent mm. uh, clients uh the 40 odd million people that we can feed with our with our produce but that's as an aside I mean that's all good stuff um mm. one of your videos I watched was on solar power and you're mm. quite um quite dubious about its merit in this uh in this country uh and yeah. you gave a very good you gave a very good um Overview of it. Have have you got a sort of synopsis of that? And yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'll try not to ramble on too long about it, but it's effectively, if you sort of boil it back to the root, I. It's Benjamin Franklin. The mythology is around Benjamin Franklin flying a kite and it getting struck by lightning or something like that. In terms of when humans started to develop electricity, I don't recall all the ins and outs of it, but 
humans effectively started to utilize electricity, if you think about it, as a substitute for sunlight. When it was dark, we needed warmth, we needed light, and we needed something to cook with. And that's where electricity sort of, you know, started to get up and running. So the idea that we can somehow now start to use sunlight to reverse engineer a substitute for electricity, you know, in and of itself, that seems a bit counterintuitive, right? Um, The biggest problem with solar all around the world, but particularly in New Zealand, is that you get the most sunlight when you need electricity the least, and it's saturated at a very, very particular part of the day, right in the middle of the day, and usually in warm time. So you bring that to New Zealand in particular, we tend to use the most electricity on a dark, cold winter's night. We've got the most sunlight in the middle of the day on a warm, clear summer's day. Um, the other issue with New Zealand is that we've we've already got a lot of renewable electricity, um, the majority of which comes from... So if you take New Zealand's electricity supply, I'll just break it down, that might be beneficial. We get about 55 60% comes from our hydroelectricity supply. Another 20% or thereabouts comes from our geothermal resources that we've got, mainly in the... Well, only in the North Island, really, in the sort of Taupo volcanic region. So that gets us up to about 75 or 80%. We get another roughly 5% that comes from wind, you know, which, and that's gone from nothing in the mid 90s through to, you know, 5% of the electricity supply today. And then there's this other 20% that we get from natural gas, um, 10, 15% comes from natural gas and roughly 5 or 10% comes from coal. But so you don't need solar power to try and get rid of or displace the renewable electricity that comes from hydro or wind or geothermal. You would only be using solar power if you were trying to displace coal and gas. But coal and gas are the only things that you can really fluctuate. You can hold a little bit in a hydro scheme and release it you know, when you want a bit more of it, but there's not a lot of capacity there. Most of our, even though we have dams in New Zealand, most of our Hydro schemes are effectively what you'd call run of river. The, the rivers run, the wind blows, the geothermal steams, you get electricity from it. But there's these peaks of demand throughout the day and also throughout the year. People get up in the morning, toasters, jugs go on, people cook breakfast, huge rush on hot water cylinders, they'll start going into overdrive. Um, industry starts to fire up for the day because not all factories run 24-7 and then sort of ebbs off a bit through the day and then sort of spikes back up again from about five o'clock at night. People come home from work, cook dinner, have showers, watch the television, et cetera, et cetera. And the only way that that happens, we we can't make more wind blow or more water run when you've got this extra demand coming online. So the only way that you can actually get more electricity is to burn a bit more coal and gas at the moment. Now, the issue with solar power is it, it doesn't produce electricity at a time when any of that's happening. And then across the year, we've got the least output from hydro in the winter and the greatest demand for electricity. So that's when you need to top it up. So, you know, the, to do it with solar is just not really possible. It, it's And it can't really, and, and the other issue is with solar. So let's say you were to say, right, carte blanche, we're just going to bring more solar online. Solar would already be an economically marginal investment for any electricity company. So if I put a solar, you know, a whole heap of solar power online, I'm saturating a part of the market that doesn't really want my product anyway. Now, I've made it a little bit less marginal for you to now come and put a solar, um, you know, large-scale solar online, Don, but you might do it anyway if the government, you know, gives you a bit of taxpayers' money for it, but it's going to be a pretty close-run thing. Now, Jaspreet's next in the queue, and she's thinking, geez, this really isn't stacking up, but shit, I'll do it anyway because I've got a subsidy for it. But at some point, it's just not going to be worth anyone's while to put solar panels on their roofs or, you know, put a large um, farm online. And then 
people say, oh, well, if you had batteries or whatever, you know, you might be able to do more. The, the battery storage capacity just does not exist to, to do that. There was a report from Genesis Energy that said if you, this was just actually in one of their annual reports, um, 51% state-owned, by the way, and the government quite happily takes the dividend from the coal and the gas that they burn at Huntley, even though they won't necessarily brag about it. But they, you know, in one of the, in one of Genesis Energy's annual reports, they said that the cost of getting enough batteries to take Huntley out of circulation would be something like 140 Tesla Powerwall batteries per household, which is about $2 million a dwelling or something like that. I mean, you know, even if it's a million dollars per dwelling, you know, you can have that. It's still not going to be worth anyone's while to do it. So... Yeah, it's solar to me is if anything's the answer, I guarantee I, I would wager my house on the fact that it's not going to be solar anyway. So yeah, not in New Zealand, that's for sure. I I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I don't. And no. and we had we had Brian Leyland on a couple of months ago, and uh, right. he was talking about the um, the nameplate sort of capacity of solar yeah. um, comes down to about ten percent or eleven percent, I think it was yeah. on average over yeah. a year. Um, yeah. And the further south you go, it's going to be less, of course. Um, yeah. But and wind, uh, I think he talked about thirty seven or thirty eight percent of their nameplate capacity was their annual sort of output. So wind uh, blows in the night uh, mm. and does have some merit, uh, but I imagine the intermittency of everything is the problem. Reliable. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, what was that, sorry, Jesper? The reliability. That's the main yeah. thing. When you want power, you need it to be reliable. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you turn a light switch on, you want it to be basically going in with wind. I think, you know, there's definitely more to be said for wind. It's not as seasonally restricted as what solar is wind blows all year round it does blow at night time one of the biggest difficulties i think with wind is it can be windy sometimes and it may not be windy other times but the the biggest issue that i can see with wind is the best wind resource is concentrated in the sort of lower north island manawatu whanganui those sorts of areas wider upper but you're really, if you start to build up more and more wind farms there, you're really banking on the weather of one particular part of the country. Now, you can put wind farms in other parts of the country, but there may not be a case for them being there. You know, there's the, you sort of have to look at different parts of the country as their own little cluster. Now, if there's a lot of hydro down around Southland and Otago, putting a wind farm there to try and supply local areas that have already got a lot of cheap energy that's somewhat stranded in that part of the country anyway isn't necessarily going to do that much good. And, I mean, to, to even look at wind, if you, it's 5% of New Zealand's electricity supply. Since we built our first wind farm in the sort of mid-late 90s, I think 95, 96, the first turbine was commissioned, it's taken us over 25 years to get to a point where wind's 5% of our electricity supply and 1% of our total primary energy supply. So that's all the coal and gas we use in industry. That's all the petroleum we use in transport. So to try and get that to... 2% of primary energy supply, you'd have to take all the wind farms we've built in the last 25 or 30 years and do it again and again and again and again. And it's not just the consenting or the sensitivity that you might have to neighbours or biodiversity, but the other, this is more of an intuitive sort of feeling, but I'd have thought that all of the technically easiest wind farms have been built. You know, the best wind resources have already been exploited in the best possible location. Any future ones will surely be closer to the nesting area for some 
you know, species of valued and protected bird or closer to a neighborhood or on a more technically difficult, you know, hillside or something like that. So it's going to get harder to produce wind, I'd have thought anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to go back to mining now. I mean, mm, yeah, I, yeah. I, to yes. Atapri, I live not far from uh, Bathurst Mines, Ohio Nightcaps out here. Yeah. And nearly every community fundraiser in that area, mm. there seems to be some sort of contribution from the mines. Yeah. Yeah, they have, you know, and they they supply very clear uh, data on what are mm. they doing to water quality and yeah. how they are, you know, replanting the land back, putting it back, and so on. If you look, at least to me, and I'm not a technical person, mm. the footprint of mm. coal mines seems to be really small. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think of so, what percentage of conservation estate do you think of New Zealand land would have mines disturbed? Yeah, well, conservation land, I can say quite easily because I know that figure. So in the last sort of, well, since 1987, when the Department of Conservation was set up Mm. um, and the processes that have sort of existed since then, Conservation Act and then early 90s, Crown Minerals Act, Resource Management Act, the area of conservation land that's been disturbed by mining has been about 3,500 hectares, which it's good that I'm talking to farmers because you sort of understand what hectares are. So 3,500 hectares or thereabouts out of, about 8.8, 8.9 million hectares, which is the entirety of the conservation estate. So to put that in a direct proportion, 0.04% or four hectares out of every 10,000. So 9,996 hectares, not impacted by mining, if you like. Um, and if you look generally across all of New Zealand, the um, Bathurst mine in Southland that you mentioned, Takatimu, that's on privately owned farmland and I think also yep. on a bit of um, forestry land and that's the stuff some of it I think council owned as well. Um I would be surprised. I would, you know, to add it up in total, I'd, I'd go ballpark maybe five thousand hectares maximum, maybe six thousand under ten thousand hectares anyway. Gosh, so, you know, that is, it, yeah. And, and and when I say disturbed, some of that's areas that have been mined but will have already been rehabilitated as well. So yeah, and actually, probably the clear, well, not necessarily a conflict of interest, but just a disclaimer. So Bathurst Chief Executive is also the chairman of. Um, Minerals West Coast, if anyone thinks I'm being too kind of Bathurst or anything like that. Um, but the, I actually went down to Takatimu in April earlier this year and emceed the open day that they had there at the coal mine. And I was there at that one. Oh, really? oh on okay. that wet yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, was there. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, and and I, everyone actually that would, you know, everyone that worked there was, and I have to say, actually, just going to the mine, my first impression of that particular mine, there were the, the crew that worked there just really happy, positive, keen to showcase, you know, where they're working and that sort of stuff. And, um, and you know, whether it's a mine or, you know, another large industrial site, freezing works, dairy factory, whatever, you just, you get whatever impression you get within the first five minutes of being there. And it was just a really good, not to be too technical, but just vibe on site and that sort of stuff. And, um, and I, sorry, just to cut a long story short, the open day that was there, I think there was an anticipation that a lot of people would turn up for the sausage sizzles and the lolly scrambles and the bouncy castles but maybe wouldn't be that interested in the mining side of it they were doing bus tours and shuttles and that around the mine and every extra driver that they'd made contingency for every extra van that they had on standby that i think they had about 1500 people over the course of the day or around 13 1500 mm. that really just wanted to go through and see the mine and that sort of stuff and even the there were two ladies that were there running a coffee cart as some sort of fundraiser or maybe just as a business. And one of the women that was there, it wasn't both of them, but one of them said, oh, you're still doing the tours? She said, I've never been through there and I really, really wanted to see it, you know. And um, 
I said, oh, I'm sure we can arrange that. So I said to the mine manager, Paul, I said, oh, look, is it too late to get someone through? He said, no, we'll get a ute and make it work. So, you know, it was, and people were just really curious to see what was happening. But back to your original point, the, I mean, one of the big things for me with mining and, you know, having grown up next to a pit that used to be mined by my family and that sort of stuff that was gradually reshaped and put into pasture and parts of it have now been made into housing and that sort of stuff. It's If you look at everything that's occurred in New Zealand over the last sort of seven or eight centuries of human inhabitation in terms of meeting people's needs, whether it was mower hunting on the Canterbury Plains, you know, 700 years ago, uh, or, you know, farming, forestry, whatever else. Mining, to my mind, is the only one that can actually urbanisation throw that in there as well. Subdivisions mining is the only temporary land use that really exists where after mining has occurred, you can actually do what you want with the land. So if it had biodiversity values before it was mined, you can try and ensure that it's got biodiversity values after it was mined. You can put it back into farmland, you can put it back into housing, you can really do anything that you want with it because you're actually only utilising the land for a fixed period while you access that resource effectively. So 0.04% of the land. It it really puts it into perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, that's a figure that's so small that I think when people hear it, they sort of think, oh, well, what's actually the problem then? But then that puts it in proportion. But then you see a photo, and I'm exactly the same as, like, I look at an f- old family photo of a yellow caterpillar machine ploughing through some native bush, and all you see is that photo. You know, you don't get the sense of proportion. You just see that and think, you know, I don't really like it. And Dad said to me, he doesn't like clearing bush but it's just been an aspect of what he's done over the course of his life and it's, farmers don't necessarily like sending their animals off to the works and that sort of stuff but it's just part of the job and if you weren't doing that you wouldn't be a miner or you wouldn't be a farmer well, or something like that sometimes you know so yeah you clear the bush for everything don't you making roads yeah. housing yeah, all exactly. of it and, yeah. and you know i might be flippant when i'm saying this but it seems coal mining is bad but if you're mining in congo or mongolia mm. Yeah. Or stuff that goes into your EVs and Teslas and all of that, that that seems to get a free pass, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think when something's happening, you know, someone will be far, most people will be far more comfortable buying, you know, 250 grand bit of steak from the supermarket than they would be butchering a cow. And I can completely understand that for obvious reasons. So if something's out of sight and out of mind, people will have a different feeling about it. I mean, other countries have got different policies and even different values. They might not have a functioning political regime and that sort of stuff. So practices that occur in other countries um, aren't what we would want in New Zealand. And I, mean, I think if anything, else, if, if nothing else, the fact that that's how mining can be done shows that mining is not just good in and of itself. And if it's not done properly and if it's not managed like any other economic activity, it can have quite harmful outcomes. But from my point of view, if it's in New Zealand, we don't just have ownership of it we have custody we have responsibility and we can dictate the terms you know through legislation on which mining occurs so yeah yep um all of this stuff is uh it's it's almost foreign i watched um your interview on tv one i think it was with maddie oh, mclean yeah. where yeah, he yeah. he linked back to um a forest and bird activist who mm. talked about um this is death by a thousand cuts to the to the um environment yeah. yeah and yeah and your output that was a very long interview for tv one by the way um mm-hmm. they normally yeah. would cut cut it short but yeah. you obviously had them captivated but he couldn't yeah. get your angle uh i looked at his quizzical face the whole you know every time it went back to him he couldn't get it that you could have uh co- um 
an advanced predator control and conservation mm. if you just allowed a little bit of mining. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're a West Coaster, as, as you are, uh, and I called you a patriot early on, mm. uh, to me, the West Coast needs that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, just like Southland needs stuff. We we, yeah. we use the environment. We use it wisely, hopefully, and, mm. and we improve as we learn. Um, mm. uh, you know, it's a bit arrogant for someone to be sitting disconnected in a, a high rise in, in the big city, sort of saying, you can't do this on the West Coast. Um, you're you're hurting um, something, and and then you go on to your other story that I've watched on one of your clips about the in the Coromandel where you're, the the mining company there is going to be digging tunnels under conservation land. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't lost on me that the mm-hmm. Archie's frog doesn't live in those tunnels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the very uh very idea that uh that they could be uh, affected by uh, by the mining. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it it was it was almost too obtuse to be understood, I imagine, by a lot of people. But uh, there's so many ways and means that man devolves or evolves his ideas uh, mm-hmm. and does things better. I mean, we should just have some trust in that around, as you say, some some smart regulations. Mm-hmm. But um, what else can we talk about? I mean, I, there's this technology uh, that I'd like to go back to in terms mm-hmm. of coal burning. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the scrubbers uh, that are used in modern coal uh, burning facilities? Do you yeah, know much well, about that? Oh, look, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on it. The only thing I can really say to that is something that, um, uh, oh, I won't name names here just to protect the innocent, but someone that works at a large industrial site uh, who I know anyway made the point once. And, and scrubbers don't necessarily do a lot for carbon dioxide emissions per se but in terms of just general air quality and that sort of stuff um you know if you were to walk around and i'm trying to think of other townships around southland that probably this would also apply to as well but if you were to walk around pokatika on a winter's morning when people have banked down their fires overnight with coal and that sort of stuff to just try and make sure it's easy to fire them up in the morning you know if you this time of year for example if you were to go for a walk or a run around pokatika at six or seven in the morning you could smell coal soot in the air and that sort of stuff. And if you're up on the airport hill looking down, you can see a little bit of a layer. Not not much because we're a coastal town and we get a lot of wind and that sort of stuff. Not like Christchurch probably would have been 50 years ago when it's effectively a, a bowl. Um, apparently once upon a time in Christchurch, you had to have streetlights on in the daytime to sort of see through the fog. It was sort of like almost a Victorian Sherlock Holmes sort of type thing. <laughs> now, you take that. Now, I, I don't know what the annual coal consumption for residential households in Hokitika is, but it wouldn't be much now you know that's on a winter's morning or a winter's evening that people would notice that now Westland milk products in Hokitika goes through oh they were going through 70 or 80 thousand tons of coal a year I think now it's probably closer to 50,000 just through efficiencies and things like that now they're burning probably more coal in a day or a week um, in the middle of summer than what all of the households put together in Hokitika would burn across an entire winter or something like that right and yet if you go past Western Mill, get any day of the year when it's operating, you won't even smell coal. You'll see a bit of steam coming out of the boilers and then the chimney tops and that sort of stuff, but you won't see soot and you won't smell coal because that, generally speaking, those respiratory issues and that sort of stuff, they're just, just not really existent in New Zealand through the regulations and everything that we've got. The types of coal that you're allowed to burn and, like you say, the scrubbers and the filters and that sort of stuff tend to regulate that quite effectively. So, yeah. 
So, so you'd argue that the, well, perhaps you can argue that the footprint is not as deleterious as uh, it once was because of improvements in in scrubbing. Mm, yeah. um, we could uh, we could debate whether the CO two um, is a bad mm. thing or a good thing. I mean, yeah. most most farmers know it's a good thing. Um, more CO two is a greening world, but um, we understand that. Uh, uh, using the resources uh, of the world efficiently is is more our, our go but yeah there's um what are we going to do to change you know, new zealand's got this um this idea that we can just ban stuff all the time yeah what what's what's going to change that is it economic conditions or is it going to be um, New Zealanders waking up to uh, a, you know, and they say they're going to want a desirable standard of living across mm. all uh, uh, components of society. Mm. Uh, I, what's your view on that? Because activists seem to be controlling the media narrative on all the stuff, and I, yeah, I just take my hat off to you, um, Patrick. You're very, very good in the in the media. You mm. put put your case across without malice but boy there's a lot of people who are seriously malicious when they start speaking on stuff that's negative to use of resources like coal yeah well um you know thank you for saying so in terms of um you know whether i'm having any effect or anything on or not in the media i you know appreciate the compliment um regardless but the yeah that i think the malice and that sort of stuff it does get a bit frustrating i mean i definitely try as hard as i can to go on the basis of what facts I can find, treat people with a degree of, you know, sincerity and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, it is difficult in terms of sort of when will there be a bit of a wake up moment and that sort of stuff. It, it's a very difficult link to draw, you know, I mean, it, there's certain things that are easier to illustrate than others. I mean, from, you know, if you're a dairy farmer, I I don't think it's, impossible to get people to understand that milk comes from a cow or that you know lamb comes from a you know in terms of meat comes from a sheep or wool comes off a sheep's back now take something a bit less tangible than that and you need in new zealand to produce corrugated iron for roofing um at the nz steel possibly just step over the recent um taxpayer funded deal that the government did with blue scope we'll just walk past that quickly um the you know, and and you could say to people, right? That's that's been produced through coal um, from the Waikato, and some imported from Indonesia, and the iron sands of the Taranaki. And to get people to look at a sheet of corrugated iron and see that um, is difficult, even though you can see that it's made from metal. Now, you try and then go that little bit further and tell people that the milk that I just mentioned has got coal as an energy input. In- into it well can't really see the coal that's in the milk you definitely can't see the coal that's in the tomatoes that have been ripened in hothouses that have got a consistent temperature year round and so what most people see when they see that the cost of tomatoes or milk or what have you may have gone up at the supermarket well the first instinct is to you know blame the greedy grocer or the you know dairy owner or something like that and then the next instinct is probably to blame the farmers for you know rotting them and all that sort of stuff the the instinct is not to blame the added cost components from a quite likely well-meaning official somewhere, you know, sitting in an office um, somewhere in the sort of, you know, CBD of Wellington. So that's the, that's the and, and the thing that I probably worry about, like, let's say, for example, there were some big deindustrializations, maybe some dairy factories shutting or, you know, NZ Steel pulling out of New Zealand or something like that. They've got pretty strong political levers seemingly, but, you know, anything like that. Well, 
once that happens, it's too late. A factory once it leaves the country is never going to come back, you know. And that's that's the concern that I've got is that by the time it possibly becomes more obvious or conscious for people, well, the ship sort of that ship sailed, horses bolted, whatever else you want to say. So yeah. Yeah. Um quickly before we go, Patrick, what's yeah. next for you? I know you uh, recently are on the council now. Is yeah. it the West West Coast? District Council. Uh, the West, so Westland, if anyone doesn't understand the parochial dynamics of the West Coast, there's Buller District <laughs> in the north, which sort of goes from Karamea for anyone that's walked the Hefe track down to Punakaiki. Grey District, we'll just stick to the coastline. Grey District goes from Punakaiki down to just south of Greymouth Township, where there's the Tatamako River. And then just south of that, you've got Westland District, which goes all the way down to the border of um, Southland, actually, um, about Big Bay or no, Milford Sound, I think it is maybe, or Martins Bay or somewhere there or thereabouts. So um, yeah, Western District. So on the council there. Sorry, Jesper, what was your um, so 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 what got you on this? You know, coming from uh, the background you have, what got you starting oh, the council? Oh, on the council, I guess. Um, probably always had a slight interest in politics, not in sort of a partisan sense or anything like that, but just in terms of how governments function or don't function and the impacts that that can have on people's lives and my. Families had a fairly intimate relationship with the district council in um, Westland through, you know, various subdivisions and dealing with, you know, issues and what have you there. It's just sort of something I've always paid attention to, but there were just a few things that I didn't feel particularly happy with, with how things were being done. And I thought, well, you can either sit on the sidelines and blame the referee, or you can sort of try and get on the field yourself and, you know, see if there's anything that you can do about it. So whether that's going to be the case or not remains to be seen, but, you know, it's a, um, in terms of anything in the process that I find doesn't quite work the way that I think it would be desirable to work, and that's only trying to govern a district of 9,000 people, um, you know, in one of three districts on the West Coast, you sort of think, geez, if you extrapolate that across 5 million people in New Zealand, still only a relatively small country, it's no wonder that things go the way they go, um, you know, sometimes in New Zealand. So, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more, but with so, your, uh, you know, communication skills, I have no mm-hmm. doubt you'll make a difference. So oh, and I think and I think the two of you need to um, communicate a whole lot more on uh, yeah. getting the Haas Hollyfoot Road between uh, the West Coast and and uh, Southland. I know the people in Queenstown will hate me saying that because they don't want it, but uh, you know I think that would be a great uh, a great thing to have happen over time uh, you know, in, the, in the near future. I know I lobbied for it in 2011 and 2014, and um, the people in Tianao were keen as mustard. Um, mm. But uh, it just seems to go on the back burner. So the two of you councillors and are joining uh, uh, councils, maybe you can make some, something happen. Good yeah, may look, in, good, may look into it. We've got a hard enough time just filling potholes and sealing roads as it is before we take that on. But, yeah, that'll be on for another day, Don. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, we, thanks very much for yours, and yeah, happy to talk. So, sorry, Don, what were you going to say? It's there? it's been great. Your enthusiasm is um, infectious, and um, I hope yeah, the, the people of the West Coast um, are lucky to have him, and the and Minerals West Coast lucky to have a man of your um, considered uh, nature and and enthusiasm in there in the midst. So, uh, all the best and all power to you. Uh, thanks for coming on to RCR Greenwashed. Oh no, no, hey, thanks very much for having me, and um, yeah, good luck with um, everything else in the future. And yeah, happy to talk again sometime if you like. So, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Cheers. Just Breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.